0: Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and uh, here we are into another episode of the podcast. And I do believe that I said recently, on this very podcast, that the frequency of these episodes was going to increase. And lo and behold, uh, then I proceeded to give you a gap. (laughs) But hey, such is life, and uh, here we are again, and uh, I'm sitting here, um, well sitting here having uh, a broken foot. That's what I've got at the moment. So I've got a broken foot. I put my back out. So uh, I'm sort of on crutches with my foot in a moon boot, uh, hobbling around the house whilst also trying not to have my back go into spasms and taking uh, lots of painkillers. So uh, such is life. And uh, anyway, here I am in front of my microphone speaking to you. And it's a welcome distraction, to be honest. So, uh, so welcome in, and today on the podcast, what we're going to be talking about is some of the uh, interesting elements of certain streams of the Christian tradition that focus a lot on end times. You, you may or may not have experience in this kind of Christianity, but you may be familiar with language that's kind of entered pop culture as well, things like the Mark of the Beast, or the Antichrist, or um, the fact that Jesus is going to come back, and all this kind of stuff. So we're going to dive into some of this, and I can't promise that we're going to answer all of those questions. But what we do want to ask in this particular episode is what's kind of going on in in where these stories come from, what's going on in the the texts in the Christian scriptures that these particular interpretations come from, and if some of the more sort of interesting, unusual slash bizarre um, interpretations of those texts maybe aren't the way to see things, is there actually anything particularly helpful or, or relevant going on for us here? So I want to say, I suppose right at the outset, that I'm going to offer some different ways of understanding what's going on in those, in those original texts that I do think is still... Very relevant for us, but not in the way that perhaps I used to think when I was very much absorbed within the kind of end times Christianity of my um, earlier life, and uh, and so you know I um I I as even as a child was kind of fascinated by, the, by this idea that Jesus was going to come back by all of these theories about you know who the Antichrist was going to be and what the mark of the beast was going to be, and I remember when um when barcodes you know, when I realized barcodes, possibly with the mark of the beast, or then FBOS, you know, like a cashless society. There were all these different predictions about all of these things that were going to trigger the end of days of Jesus' return, all this kind of stuff that if you didn't, maybe, um, if you haven't experienced that, maybe that sounds a bit strange to you. Uh, but certainly it was the kind of world I was immersed in to some degree. And tied in with all of that are all sorts of ideas about uh, the nation of Israel as well. And you know, this is where things move. I suppose from being you know a curious oddity of particular Christian churches or movements to actually having an impact on kind of geopolitical realities. Because a lot of the ways in which North America, in particular, have approached um, things that are happening in the Middle East and around Israel and so on, has been shaped by some of this Christian thinking around end times and all of that kind of stuff. And even you know, as I speak at the moment, there's violence that has broken out between you know the nation of israel and the palestinians and hamas and it's just tragic to watch it unfold and also to know that some of the ways in which you know there can be from some sections of the christian church these very callous attitudes towards palestinians and it's often because of this particular interpretation of kind of christian texts that seem that you know that offer a particular way of of thinking about what's going on here and you know some of these some of these peculiar interpretations have shaped like foreign policy of nations, and so um, what starts out as this kind of interesting interpretation of particular scriptures ends up shaping um, geopolitical conflict in the world, and so this does kind of matter even even from that perspective. Um, so, given all of that, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into perhaps where some of those interpretations come from. Why I think they're not the most helpful way to interpret those texts. And I'll offer some possibilities in a way that I think gives us a different kind of message and a different kind of relevance than one you may have heard. So that's where we're going to go. This is episode 45 of In the Shift. Let's get into it. Mm So when we start to think about the most popular notions of end times, of marks of the beast, of antichrists, of raptures, all of these words that uh, are very familiar to kind of end times thinking amongst um, churches and and Christians who have followed this train of thought, um, you know, those most popular ideas actually stem from the very recent past. They stem from the 19th century and then were sort of popularized and spread around in the 20th century. In particular, there was a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby in the 19th century that came up with this whole kind of framework. Uh, Sometimes it's called dispensationalism or dispensational premillennialism. This whole kind of framework um, that it had a real significant influence, particularly on uh, fundamentalists, evangelicals, Pentecostals, and charismatics in the 20th century, and still continues to have a real impact on some people in some parts of the world now. And uh, there was a there was a, a version of the Bible called the Scofield Reference Bible, which you know was sold all around the world, and it had all of Nelson uh, John Nelson Darby's kind of references and and theories sort of layered within it as notes. And so a lot of people took this up as a particular sort of way of seeing things, uh, and that spurred all sorts of predictions about the end, um, and then sort of in the mid to late 20th century, then, you, then it kind of comes into pop culture, well, Christian pop culture, not not mainstream pop culture so much as uh, Christian pop culture and things, uh, there was a movie called Thief in the Night, for example, which kind of depicts this idea uh, of, of the kind of end times Coming into coming into play of believers being raptured, which which in the in the interpretation of this film was that all suddenly all of the people who are Christians just disappeared, and so you have you know a, a woman at the start of the film who wakes up and she hears the razor going in the in the bathroom and goes in and the razor's there, but her husband's not there or her partner or whoever it is. You know planes have crashed because the pilots of who are Christians have been raptured and taken up to heaven. Uh, and, and so, unfold then all of this stuff around the end of the world. And, um, and then, in, in sort of after that, in, in more, slightly more contemporary um, time, there was a, there's a film series uh, starring Kirk Cameron uh, called Left Behind. And there was also a series of books before it was a series of movies. Again, taking this kind of particular way of interpreting the end times and, and putting it into books and movies and stuff that then became very popular among churches and among young people and so on. So there's a few things perhaps to say about how um, this way of thinking comes about, uh, a few assumptions that it's built on and then a few ways of interpreting um, Scripture that have some real implications for us. So one of, there's, there's three maybe base assumptions we could say are made in this way of seeing things. One is that when it comes to something, the, the idea of prophecy the idea in this framework is that prophecy is always about the future. So what prophecy is doing is predicting what's going to happen. So, so that's one assumption. And it's an assumption that I actually disagree with, but it's an assumption that's at the base of this. The second assumption is that there are, there is this particular genre of of texts in the scriptures called apocalyptic texts. And apocalyptic texts are um, texts that use this quite fantastical imagery um, that seems quite hard to decipher. And so um, in particular, the two most famous um, books that contain what we call apocalyptic texts are the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. So Daniel's a book in the Old Testament and Revelation's the, the last book of the Bible. And both of them contain images of of um, of quite fantastical nature. You know, a son of man appears and, you know, maybe the eyes are blazing and the there's there's all of these kind of layers of imagery that are being used here. Uh, and and it seems like they're being linked to events that are going to happen. And so um, these apocalyptic texts, um, we'll get on to what I'm going to say about what I think is going on in those soon, but in this kind of – dispensational end times thinking, those apocalyptic texts are also about predicting future events. And so the task then when we read them is to try and decipher the symbols and 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 the metaphors and the images that are being used to figure out what they're telling us about what's going to happen in the future. So that's the second assumption. One is that prophecy is always about the future. The second is that these apocalyptic texts that contain all of this fantastical imagery are, are about predicting events that are still to come, many of them. Uh, and then and then I guess even more particularly, uh, books like Daniel and Revelation are foretelling the events that lead up to the end of days and Jesus' return and sort of the climax of of creation uh, and judgment and so on. right So those are kind of three base assumptions that are going on in the way these people approach the text themselves and so um you know, and when you, and when you read something like the book of Revelation, I can see how you get there. You know, it's, it's, it's saying sort of it does use this kind of language that seems like maybe it is talking about the end of days and of, and of God kind of judging the world and destroying his enemies and, and all of these, the sequence of events that's happening. And um, and then the task becomes. Oh, okay. So that number there is used, and there's a there's a reference to a certain number of weeks over here, and a certain number of years over here. And then that number is used over there, and then that phrase is used here. And if we times that by that, and divide that by that, and multiply it by that, then it gives us you know a solution to what's going on, and some predictions about what's going to happen. And so. These kind of dispensational premillennialists, if you like, uh, who believe that the world is divided, that history is divided up into these different dispensations, and that Jesus will ultimately return before a um, one thousand or a millennial reign of Jesus on the earth. Um, so, there's a few things they believe. So, one of the things they believe is that is they talk about the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel, um, well. Look, it's up for debate about when it was written and who it was written to specifically. But the way they interpret it is that it's written to um, to Israel when they are in um, exile in Babylon after Jerusalem has been destroyed in their history. And uh, God is speaking to them through the prophet Daniel about when they're going to get to go back and when God will fulfill God's promises, right? So that's how they interpret the book. And... Um, And so they take this kind of language about God fulfilling promises to Israel in 70 weeks of years. And so they interpret that and kind of calculate that out. And, And that takes us forward to the time of Jesus. But essentially what happens is because the Jewish people, this is again in this framework, because the Jewish people don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah by and large, God essentially stops the clock with seven years left after the resurrection of Jesus So that kind of seventy weeks of years that they've interpreted from an obscure text has been sort of stopped seven years short because they haven't accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and so we're in this in-between age, waiting for that last seven years to kick in, Um, and and ultimately what's going to happen because there needs to be this plan to save Israel. You see, that's that's a big because that's the fulfilling of God's promises, and so the church will be you know all of those who follow jesus will be will be raptured up to heaven when jesus returns in other words sort of caught up into the sky to to go with jesus to heaven and then all of the unbelievers and and also all of the compromises, you know, those people who weren't proper Christians, uh, left on the earth to suffer during this period of seven-year tribulation. And this is where the final seven years of God's plan has now restarted. And so during or at the end of that seven years, God is going to fulfill God's promises to Israel, etc. There's going to be this mass salvation, conversion to Christianity of the Jewish people, um, and so on. And so all of this, in, in many respects, explains why um, evangelicals, Pentecostals, charismatics who are super, super into this kind of end times thinking are really, really passionate about protecting Israel, about Israel's place in the world. And at the end of the Second World War, you know, you have this um, this tremendous trauma and tragedy and holocaust of Jewish people in Europe because of Hitler. And so ultimately many Jewish people start, you know, returning back to their homeland that they haven't lived in for you know, nearly 2,000 years. Um, and and ultimately the world powers, in light of the trauma experienced by the Jewish people, make these this set of decisions to formally set up this state of Israel. And many people who held to the kind of end times eschatology see this as a part of the fulfillment of prophecy, right? This reforming of the state of Israel is a necessary component of what needs to happen so that Israel ultimately will play their role in the end times and will then also turn to Jesus towards the end. And so any kind of attack on Israel, any criticism of Israel is just simply so often unacceptable within these circles because um, that's this is part of God's plan. You know, I remember when I was younger, in my, in my 20s, and I then an American speaker came through the church that I was at, and we got into it. We went out for lunch and we were having a conversation and He was convinced that because of america's moral decline god was uh God was very upset with america but but he said what this what this preacher said was because America continued to support the state of Israel, God was continuing to still bless America, even though they were in this state of horrendous moral decline. And the only thing really protecting them from God um, punishing them was that they would continue to support Israel. And so anytime kind of the Israel, and I'm aware that, you know, the the Israel-Palestine conflict is complex and multi-layered and multifaceted. But it is undeniable (laughs) that the state of Israel itself has, you know, participated in some, you know, harmful, violent and divisive and marginalizing actions towards the people of Palestine and yet in the church, especially those who are influenced very much by this way of thinking, it's defend Israel at all costs because not only is that you then playing your part in helping to bring about God's purposes but also God's continued favor towards you and, and, and so that you don't get into too much trouble yourselves. So all of this is kind of very complicated and I would say also problematic. All right, so that's just one thing to say about that at this point. Um, so there's the seven-year period, and there are you know there are all sorts of different theories about how exactly this plays out and when the rapture is going to be. Is it going to be at the start or in the middle or at the end of the seven years? And different people have different theories, etc. But that all of those theories are all a part of this one kind of overall dispensational premillennial way of thinking about the end. There's in this tribulation period, the seven year, the final seven years. There's uh, an antichrist that's believed to be in charge, and so you know predicting the antichrist was always a favorite. Um, sort of game among uh, Christians, especially in the 80s um, and even into the 90s. Um, there's this language of the mark of the beast, uh, and again, that comes from the Book of Revelation, where it talks about people being unable to buy and sell without taking the mark of the beast. And so, it's been you know theorised that there will be this kind of physical mark that people will have to take. And if you take that, then um, then you're essentially denying Jesus. And you know, again, we see the real world implications. I've seen. TikToks of kind of young Christian influences, in, in, particularly in North America, talking about how the COVID-19 vaccine is going to be the mark of the beast and it's going to be implanted in you and that's how they're going to control you. And so don't take the vaccine because it's going to, etc. Cetera, et cetera, So there's some, you know, there's some real world implications to the way this theology functions. Uh, sometimes within this framework, it's theorized that there's going to be a one-world religion of some kind. There's going to be an Antichrist who's going to bring about a one-world government. There's also going to be a one-world religion. Uh, In some streams, there's a very um, hostile attitude towards the Catholic Church, for example, because they see the Catholic Church as trying to bring about this idea of a one-world religion. Um, uh, The United Nations is sometimes seen in very suspicious terms because they're trying to create a one-world government, uh, you know, even amongst certain circles in North America, part of the commitment to being able to bear arms and to have guns is because they see themselves as the last stand between um, kind of the rise of the Antichrist and the one world government and and so on. They're going to hold on to their guns so that it can defend against this um, oppressive Antichrist one world government situation. And so what you actually have is people shaped by this way of thinking who who are very suspicious of any kind of um, what we would call ecumenism, which is like churches actually getting along with each other uh, and working together. And often suspicious of interfaith dialogue, very suspicious of, you know, different religions talking to each other and figuring out points of commonality and so on. So again, real-world implications to this way of thinking. Ultimately, some of the ideas here are that, you know, Israel is going to make a seven-year peace deal with the Antichrist of some kind, thinking it's going to bring peace, but they're going to be double-crossed by the Antichrist. They will have rebuilt the temple But it's going to be defiled and I can't get into exactly how they come to all of these different conclusions other than to say, take a whole bunch of very highly symbolic fantastical imagery and then put it through a particular interpretive lens and you come out with all of these conclusions and various iterations and permutations and combinations. Ultimately, the end of the seven years, perhaps is going to be when the Battle of Armageddon will be fought, uh, Babylon is going to be destroyed, Jerusalem's going to fall, but then God's going to step in, Israel's going to turn to Jesus, Jesus is going to come and defeat all of God's enemies and then reign on earth for a thousand years. Right? It's a very elaborate uh, framework, but it has been highly influential within the kind of circles that I've been talking about so far. Now, I've already started to mention some of the implications for this way of seeing. And I think it has to be said that the fruit of those implications has been um, problematic, to say the least. Um, Damaging, harmful, violent even. And so my suggestion to you is that actually this entire way of looking at scriptures like this is a long way from what the texts were supposed to be trying to do and um, and in fact this is a very recent development in the christian tradition you know it's only in the last 150 years uh, of a 2000 year history that people have started to talk like this really in and the kind of numbers that we're we're talking about here now as always these kinds of theologies do function for people you know they don't just emerge because um, people have got you know nothing better to do uh, and 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 people don't hold on to them because they like problematic outcomes, because they like violence. Uh, people hold on to these beliefs because they help them cope with reality. And um, and so maybe, you know, there's three ways I could suggest that this kind of end times thinking helps people cope with reality. And, and one is that it's helped people cope with the, with the kind of negative trajectory of life. So, so this um, way of interpreting the Bible really came about when people were seeing um, what they believed you know, to be a, a rise in violence. Um, they saw Christianity starting to come under attack in the West, and so you have this kind of history of Christendom, right, where, where the church was at the centre of things, and yet this is starting to be pulled apart and starting to be challenged and critiqued and the rise of science and other things. So there's this kind of negative um, trajectory in particular for the church and its role and its influence. So how do we make sense of that? Um, and then there's this um, perceived negative turn in the world more broadly. And so, you know, there are, there are little texts that we can pull on that say, you know, oh, there's going to be lots of earthquakes and famines and wars. And then we look around and say, look at all of the war that's going on. Look at everything terrible that's happening. Look at the the moral decline of society, you know, um, so on. The worse things get, the more of a sign – rather than being sort of depressed by that, if you hold on to this end times framework, then the worse things get in a sense of the church being rejected and the worse things get in terms of the world itself going into some kind of violent spiral, the more of a sign it is that Jesus is going to return. And so it's sort of the more hopeful you feel, right? So it actually helps you to cope with loss of power and privilege and it helps you to cope – with uh, the rise of fear. It helps you to cope with the fear of what's going to happen in the world. And so, again, it, perhaps it's no surprise that in the time of a global pandemic, this kind of stuff does become popular uh, again and people begin to talk about it and hold on to it because how do we make sense of what's going on? Well, we we can say, look, it's all part of some big conspiracy to bring about a one-world government, to bring about control. Uh, it's the rise of the Antichrist and so on. That gives us an explanation when we're feeling fearful and uncertain about what's going on. And perhaps the last thing, the third thing I want to say, is that as the world rapidly changes, it also helps, you know, make people feel special. They've got the special insight into what's really going on. And I guess this is the grounds of of conspiracy theories too, you know. Um, This idea that everyone else is blind fools, but I see behind the curtain and what's really going on here. And, you know, I'm actually kind of sympathetic to that to some degree because I recognise that often powers and empires do function to oppress and to marginalise and to cause suffering and to to kind of blind people to that in the process. And so, you know, I, perhaps it's no surprise that sometimes conspiracy theories uh, are more likely to arise in marginalised communities because marginalised communities have more reason to doubt the trustworthiness of governments and powers because they've been under the thumb of those governments and powers they've suffered under them indigenous peoples and you know and others so so there's a there's a sympathy I have for that suspicion of power and for that um, slight paranoia even and the the feeling that this is all part of some big plan uh, and yet at the same time the way in which this kind of end times thinking folds into that takes that kind of healthy skepticism of power and turns it into something really dysfunctional, and ultimately really harmful. And so I'm going to propose some different ways of thinking about what's going on here in the last part of this episode. So when you um, when you study how to read the Bible, one of the first questions you're introduced to is, what would this have meant to the first audience for the people for whom it was originally written? And when we ask that kind of question of books like Daniel and Revelation—you know these are the two that that a lot of this kind of end times thinking is built on. Um, when we ask that question of these texts, um, generally what we see is that these are, these are not—you know these are written to a particular audience and for a particular reason, and they're not to say, "Hey, here I've decided to write you this letter because there's going to be some stuff that happens in a few thousand years that's going to have absolutely no impact on you, but I thought you should know about." Um, that's probably not a particularly helpful starting point. Um, And instead what we find is that uh, when we look at the history of texts like this, uh, one of the things that happens, yes, in the Jewish story, in the story of Israel, is that they go from being, um, you know, this relatively prosperous nation early in their history to being one that's kind of oppressed and, and, and who suffered deeply and who are crushed and who are scattered. And at different points in their history, of that kind of crushing and suffering, they develop this way of talking about what's going on, a kind of resistance literature, if you like, that we call apocalyptic texts. And so rather than, you know, writing a letter and saying, oh, the enemy who's currently ruling over us, these guys are the worst ever and we need to know that they're going to lose because they're the worst and we're the best and and even though you're suffering right now, uh, ultimately this empire is going to be brought down, well, you probably get in trouble for sending a letter like that when you're being ruled over by a, by a powerful empire who's interested in keeping their foot on your throat. And so instead, they develop these ways of writing that employ kind of layers of Jewish symbolism and imagery to be able to talk about their experience of suffer- suffering in the midst of this kind of overwhelming violence that they're experiencing – but in ways that also give hope and say, you know, what we think there's more going on here. We think God is still at work. The divine is still going to be present to us to liberate us or to overcome the violence that we're experiencing. And so, rather than being about some far off, distant future event, what's happening in these apocalyptic texts isn't a prediction of the future as much as it is about an interpretation of the present. Uh, one of the um, scholars of uh, that I that I find particularly helpful when I come to think about how um, the prophets in particular speak to us is is Walter Brueggemann. And he talks about the idea that Walter Brueggemann, uh, sorry, he talks about the idea that prophets offer us a new imagination. Uh, In other words, there's kind of an alternative script, an alternative narrative to the dominant one that's being thrust upon us by the powers and empires around us. So so what happens is you're, you're in this context and the empire or the power who's ruling over you essentially says this is the way reality is. And what these apocalyptic texts did, what prophets tried to do was to say there's a different way of seeing what's going on here. And often, as I said, these kinds of texts kind of emerge during times of extreme tension. And in particular, how we make sense of our experience of human suffering, especially when um, God is supposed to be good and God is supposed to be interested in um, resisting power and violence and those who cause suffering. And yet here we are seeing the success and prospering nature of those who are using violence to get their own way and the suffering and the pain of those who are supposedly being sort of more faithful to God, right? And so these apocalyptic texts are one way to wrestle with the question of, well, if God is good and in control, then why isn't why doesn't God stop this? Um. So, you know, one of the ways in the Old Testament that they did interpret their suffering a lot of the time was that it was punishment from God for their disobedience. And that works to a point, but what about when they've been faithful? What about when they haven't been disobedient and they're still suffering? And that's the kind of context in which apocalyptic texts arise and they use subversive imagery. They use imagery that wouldn't really be understood by the empires and by the powers around them. Uh, And so if you're you know, delivering or circulating a, a letter to, to your communities that are talking about um, the limits of the empire and how ultimately God is uh, going to deliver you and how your suffering is going to come to an end and God is going to, you know, there's going to be judgment for those who are causing your suffering Well, you know, uh, when you use all of these layers of imagery to do that, then it's much harder to interpret. And so it becomes this kind of subversive resistance literature circulating amongst these suffering people. Um, The book of Revelation in particular, right, is written in the latest part of the first century. And it's under the reign of of an emperor called Domitian. And um, he's quite similar to another emperor called Nero in, in his treatment of Christians so he's he's very antagonistic and violent towards Christians and also very uh, fond of self-exaltation so he demanded to be called Lord and Savior he executed any you know those who were seen to be denying the Roman gods uh, including himself because he saw himself in sort of divine terms and so um, Christians would be arrested under Emperor Domitian and if they would be released if they would agree to make sacrifices to the Roman gods and offer worship to the emperor. Um, otherwise, they would be executed. And so John, who's writing this text at this time, the author of Revelation, or who we think is the author, is himself in prison during this time on, on something called the island of Patmos. And he takes up the task in prison of interpreting what he thinks going on here. Does all of this mean that that God has kind of abandoned us? Is God actually still present and at work in the world? But should, should we just give up and give in to the coercive and, and violent forces of this empire and just do what they want? Or should we continue to be faithful to God? And so he writes the book of Revelation in that kind of context, trying to deal with that kind of question. Uh, and, and what John, John does in the book of Revelation is to contrast the empire of Rome and the work of evil in the world with this Christian claim that somehow the divine has come present to us through the story of Jesus and this uh, mode of self-giving love. And so uh, there are these, there's this language of kind of worshiping the beast uh, that you find in the book of Revelation. And the beast is a symbol of the violent empire. The beast is a symbol of, of Rome, right? Um, and, and we can also say, as we'll come on to say, that, that Rome then functions as a symbol or a metaphor for every powerful, violent empire that uses its power to control and oppress and demand allegiance, right? So there is relevance to us here, but not necessarily in the way that uh, has been used by kind of end times theorists. So we have these texts that ask us, that that, that say the, the beast is kind of commanding worship, that there's this idea of taking the mark of the beast in order to be able to buy and sell. And so, you know, again, this is a, this is a, a reflection on the current experience that they're having of of this kind of de- necessary devotion and allegiance to Caesar in order to be able to participate in the life and the economy and the markets of their day. In order to be able to get by, they are supposed to swear their d- loyalty, devotion, and worship towards the Caesar Domitian. And, um, and that's, if you like, taking the mark of the beast. And so what the book of Revelation is doing is it, is it says, well, rather than achieving victory by taking up violence and by power over. Instead, God achieves victory through the laying down of life and through self-giving love that we see in Jesus. And so you see this contrast between the beast, which represents the empire and Rome and violence and oppression. And then in in the book of Revelation, there's this image used a lot of a lamb that was slain. And that's an image of kind of the Jesus story and of uh, a giving up of one's power, if you like, Because in love. And so victory comes through love rather than through power. And um, and ultimately what the story is trying to say is even though the the lamb that was slain looks weak compared to the beast, which is big and violent and powerful, ultimately it's the lamb that was slain that is told to be victorious in this story rather than the beast that's violent. And so self-giving love is shown to be more powerful, more real, more true than violence and power and oppression and empire. Throughout the whole letter, right, time moves backwards and forwards. It, it collapses different images together. It's got Moses and Elijah and David and Sodom and Jezebel and Babylon and uh, beasts and lambs and, and creatures and uh, all of these things in a swirling kind of cacophony of images and symbols, you know, and um, and the same event told from different perspectives uh, with different imagery uh, told again and again. So there's little loops within the story and it, it's very complex piece of subversive first century literature that is, if you like, anti-empire, but not anti-empire in a way that spurs kind of violent revolution, instead anti-empire in a way that says, no, the way to real life here, the way to to real true life is through embracing the path of self-giving love rather than taking up violence. And ultimately that God will vindicate them just as God vindicates Jesus. And so um, there's this really kind of profound idea here that I think still speaks to us in many respects about what we live by. What kind of story do we live by here? Uh, Even one of the the big questions in Revelation, if you like, is who do you worship and who do you serve? And now taken the wrong way and out of context and when used by powerful people, this actually can become very exclusionary and this is what happens later in the church is this is, a, this is a book written to people who are suffering and under extreme hardship and persecution. And uh, then it's taken and read by people who have power and used differently. So this idea of who do you worship and who do you serve, um, out of context and used by those with power, um, sounds very exclusionary. You know, Our job is to run around and find those people who are not worshiping the right God and tell them they're part of the evil world that's going to be thrown into the flames. <laughs> But if we see this text as being written by those who are being oppressed and who are being killed and who are being persecuted by this overwhelmingly powerful empire that they're being asked to give their allegiance and their worship to, then this question of who are you going to worship becomes instead an encouragement not to buy into the big system of power, but instead to continue um, to follow the way of Jesus. Are you going to fall in line? with power and oppression and violence and economic superiority or are you going to follow a different path? Because, it says, we think this path is where the true life and power is. And in fact, it's this path, the path of self-giving love, that ultimately defeats the powers of empires and beasts and violence. And so, this is about how we want to live in the world. And we continue to face these kinds of questions now. So rather than saying this is all predictive of some stuff that's going to happen sometime out there, it speaks to us right in the midst of our experience. We still live in a world with all sorts of competing stories and narratives, people telling us that this is the way things are, that we must be this and consume this and buy this and use this and keep those people out and push those people to the edge and prioritize these things in order to be modern, contemporary, successful people. So there's those kinds of narratives where we need some alternatives here. We need some alternative ways of living. There are still at a a kind of bigger global level, the powers, the empires, the use of violence, the desire to control and manipulate that we are challenged here in these kinds of texts to instead tune into the suffering of people on the margins and on the edges and to embrace a different kind of story. And so there is a challenge and there is an encouragement and there is an invitation to a different way of being in the world, a different kind of life. And I do find that challenging, but perhaps not in the way that end times thinking used to challenge me, more in the way that, you know, my suspicions and my my concerns are much less to do with global conspiracies about viruses and one-world governments and the Catholic Church joining forces with the United Nations, and much more to do with the way that our economic system, the way that our narratives of the nation state and of power in the world serve to create and foster suffering, marginalisation, pain for people who are on the edges of these systems. And sometimes the edges are very large. And so there is this invitation here, yes, to a suspicion of power and yes, to a subversive way of being in the world, but not one that's sidetracked and caught up with meaningless conspiracies, but is in fact able to seriously challenge the dominant narratives uh, around uh, what it means to be a successful person, a successful nation in the world, um, and instead offer a path of self-giving love. So, that's where we're going to finish today's episode with that kind of invitation and question for us. What are the beasts and empires of the world today and how do we embrace a different way, a different path? In the next episode of In The Shift, we're going to dive into questions of heaven and maybe some of what is going on in the uh, New Testament texts about heaven and whether that's sort of believable or not. Uh, And then we're going to, in the following episode, talk a little bit more about the idea of life after death. So stick around for all of that. Uh, I hope you'll find it helpful and enjoyable. So until next time, thanks as always to Rhys-Michel for his wonderful help in making this audio sound good in your ears.